This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hey, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich. I really admire journalists. They have the curiosity to ask the right questions, the tenacity to pursue the answers, and the clarity to share those answers in an engaging way. That said, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of what I see in ag media today, and that's nothing against the journalists at all. I think the problems lie mostly in the business model of many of these ag industry publications. So I thought it would be cool to have a conversation about the future of ag media. And this one turned out to be that and so much more. We have on the show Sarah Mock. Sarah exemplifies to me someone who is not afraid to ask the difficult questions and follow them with the fervor it takes to overcome a system that would rather really that you weren't asking. Before we jump in, reminder here to stick around to the end of this episode as well, because we also have a founder spotlight with Tyler McGee of Shepherd Farming. But Sarah Mock is from a farm background in Wyoming and an alum of the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, where she studied science, technology, and international affairs. Her background includes being a writer for Farmers Business Network, which we'll talk about in the episode a bit, the Washington correspondent and bureau chief at RFD-TV, and most recently, a freelance writer focused on agriculture and rural issues. She's one of our AgGrad 30 Under 30 this year, and actually this interview was originally intended to be on that show, but it's so good I had to share it here as well. You'll be able to tell she has seen ag media from a number of different perspectives. I'll drop you into the conversation here where I ask Sarah what underlying questions continue to drive her desire to uncover new stories. Yeah. So I think there's there's a number. T- I literally have a spreadsheet of questions that I just kind of keep track of and, and articles related to them. And, you know, as I see other people try and maybe get near the answers, it's really interesting. But I think kind of the core of a lot of them has to do with essentially, is it possible to farm without exploitation? And I think that that question is important because it's not like it, it could mean a lot of different things. And I think like what you, you know, every word in that sentence is important. You know, what does it mean to farm? What does it mean to exploit? What, like, what is possible mean? Like the levels there go really deep and it lends itself to a lot of different questions around labor, mental and emotional well-being of people, health and nutrition, environmental sustainability, financial sustainability. For me, what's really exciting about that question is the answer might be no, which is crazy. Like, it would make sense if it is in a way because agriculture is inherently an altering of a natural a natural system a natural space and you know maybe it's it's always inherently gonna like degrade the systems it's a part of but like we should know the answer to that question probably we should be able to look at the the facts and the truth and and you know make choices around that and I think that the possibility that the answer to that question is no is really scary and that's why people don't want to know 
because as long as you don't know, then you don't have to make any changes or force yourself in one direction or the other. But I don't know. I guess that's a little Carl Sagan-esque too. It's better to know than not know. And I think, you know, I think a lot of agriculture, this is a sweeping generalization, but we often let a lot of questions go unanswered or just say, you know, it's just the way it is. It's a common phrase I hear from people all over the industry. But I think, I don't know. I think there's enough people in agriculture who are tired of that answer and are looking for better answers. So yeah, we're doing. Do you think part of that comes from just the questioning nature of these younger generations, millennials and Gen Z? I mean, do you think that's what's driving it, at least partially? Yeah, I think so. I think it's also that these questions, they've definitely been building, but they have, I think, gotten to a breaking point in a lot of ways. You know, young people who grew up on farms can't go back and they want to know why. Young people who didn't grow up on farms, but who are interested in who have the education, the experience and the skills to go back, can't go back and they want to know why. People have, you know, are just becoming more aware there's more knowledge out there. The internet exists and now people can have access to all this information. And in a lot of ways, the more information you get about agriculture, the more it doesn't make sense and the the harder it is to comprehend. So I think all of those things make people more skeptical and more questioning and more, in a lot of ways, intrigued and curious and want to be involved and, you know, they want answers. Yeah. Yeah. On on the point about, you know, the more you learn about it, the harder it is. Sometimes I envy people who can write about agriculture as a kind of a caricature because like, oh yeah, it's easy if you think that's all, that's all that goes into it. Of course I could write, you know, easily a thousand words on, you know, regenerative agriculture. If it was basically uh, farmers just need to understand that soil health is important, that'd be really easy. But you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance there, but on the, on the, the point about exploitation, you know, does exploitation imply to you of people only, or would that also be kind of of resources? It's everything. So yeah, it's, and I think I've gotten, I get a lot of pushback when I ask that question in in different spaces, but you know, I don't just mean like labor either, or, you know, environmental resources. It's also, you know, knowing a lot of farmers, it, a lot of farmers like experience exploitation. They exploit themselves. They work beyond reasonable expectations of what is possible. They, you know, tax themselves and their families well beyond the like environment or the economic reward. There's lots of different ways that a system or a practice can be exploitative. And it's, it comes down to cost in a lot of ways, you know, just because one, someone isn't paying the monetary cost doesn't mean that it doesn't get taken out somewhere. And, you know, if, if it's buying cheap produce at the grocery store, you know, that probably comes a little bit out of workers wages that comes a little bit out of farmers profits that comes a little bit out of, health and nutrition that comes a little bit out of the environment. Someone's pocketing the difference and someone's paying the difference. And is it possible to create a system that's like really fair where everyone puts in, gets something out of a system that they, that's equivalent to what they put into it or, you know, a a appropriate percentage of what they put into it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So the exploitation, I think people, people's minds probably jump to like a boss exploiting employees, which is one form, but it can also be a system designed to exploit, exploit those who participate in the system. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Was it that overarching question that kind of led you to go out on your own as a freelance uh, writer and researcher? 
kind of. It's definitely, that is a hard question to try and answer while I'm writing a daily news story every day for TV news, which is really important work. Kind of keeping up on the daily news beat is certainly important, but it's also really exhausting. And it doesn't really leave time for for pursuing some of the bigger stories. And over the course of, of my time at RFD TV and, and prior to that, I had gotten enough kind of contacts from people and, and just folks reaching out to me on the internet or, or even by phone sometimes just saying, you know, you're an agriculture and rural issues reporter. Like there's just no one else who will listen to our story. Could you please, you know, spend a week in our town learning about our problems? Could you like, we have this great story that you should tell. And it was not possible for me to pursue basically any of those stories at the time. And when I went out and looked for, you know, who is, who is employing staff reporters to do enterprise level, you know, longer form, bigger picture stories about agriculture and rural issues. Nobody really does that. There are no full-time positions really for reporters that do that. Since then, the New York Times actually added a rural reporter, which is interesting. And there are a few places that have some kind of rural ag type reporting position, but they're very few and far between. They tend to be really national, which I think is a fundamental weakness of those positions because I think understanding the localism is really important for all of these stories. So yeah, so basically I realized that if I was interested in pursuing these kind of big stories, I was going to have to go out on my own and kind of be an entrepreneur and sell them one at a time and find the right niche for them and the right publication, the right town, the right group of people. Yeah, and just do it myself. So took the leap. Is the way that business works, you find the story, you pitch the story to a publication, and they say, yeah, we'll, fu- we'll fund the, the work that needs to be done to make that story come to life? Is that how it works? Mostly. So yeah, it's f- sourcing stories, taking it to a publication and pitching it. And then usually the publication just buys the completed story. So it usually has less to do with the actual expenses associated with the story and more to do with just what a publication either commonly pays per word or per story or what they are willing to pay. And then it's kind of up to you to see if you can do that story within those constraint, those financial constraints. Well, uh, talk to us about some of the places that this, this kind of overarching question about farming being possible without exploitation, you know, what types of individual stories has it led you down? Yeah. So kind of all over the place. Um, and there's been a lot of really interesting moments recently, including, you know, two years of giant trade aid packages and now a new COVID-related aid package that really bring those questions really to the forefront and and ask kind of them in different ways. But yeah, one of the first stories I did when I started freelancing was for Civil Eats about young people of color trying to get into agriculture. And, you know, I think one of the really interesting things about this story was I went to a conference put on by college level ag students at the University of the Eastern Shore in Maryland. And they were putting it on for high school students from agriculture and they're called green academies where which are high schools and basically outside of D, within and right outside of DC and Baltimore that teach whole curriculums around agriculture and kind of urban agriculture and food security they have a distinct kind of social justice bent but they're super interesting and all these kids are part of FFA and you know some of these kind of career building high educational groups for high school and they went to the university for a workshop and i could not find a single high schooler out of those 200 who said 
that farming was on their radar in any way as a possible career. And I, the reality for them was just none of them had ever met a farmer. They didn't know any farmers. Production agriculture was not on their radar as a possibility in their lives. And I think that calls for something. It, it brings up a really interesting dichotomy or, or challenge, especially when you're looking at a lot of new media interpretations of what's happening in agriculture right now. I see a lot of stories about how young farmers are particularly diverse and there's a whole new group of really diverse people coming back to the farm right now. And then I go to conferences like this and can't find a single, you know, high schooler of color who's interested in farming. And I wonder how those two things are both possible. And there's been some actual, actually really good reporting by Nathan Rosenberg about the fact that actually farmers under the age of 35 are less diverse than any other subgroup of farmers right now. A lot of people of color are not really going back to the land statistically, according to the USDA. And, you know, what does that mean? What, what's caused that? I mean, we had, we saw a bunch of big stories last year in the Atlantic and elsewhere about loss of heirs property among Southern farmers in particular. And yeah, there, it, it's a really big story about there, the desire to have this hopeful narrative around, you know, agriculture is becoming more diverse. It's a more inclusive space really clashes with what the reality seems like, which is that it's, it's, it's very much still a space that struggles with diversity. And, and it's interesting kind of in the space of being a journalist where you're, you understand why people are trying to tell this positive story about forward motion and, and diversification and how things are changing. But is that a good, is that a meaningful story to tell if they aren't really changing that much hmm. and, and how you find that kind of middle ground of, you know, the number of people I've talked to in the ag space, kind of on all ends of the spectrum for ag media say, positivity is really important for our coverage. And I've heard lots of different justifications for that. People saying like, you know, farming's too hard and too risky. People don't have an appetite for lots of negative stories. So we can't include that many, or we have to fill a lot of our coverage with more positive feel good, fluffy, featurey stories because people need kind of, they come to the news for like a pick me up to kind of on the other end of just saying like, no, they're just like our people who just say agriculture is like a positive place and, and most of the stories that are available are positive. So it wouldn't make sense to have a lot of negative stories or there just are a lot of things that are improving and things are getting a lot better. So we should just focus on those instead. So I don't know, that has been one of the things that kind of I wanted to work on as I, as I transitioned out of my staff position was finding a way to tell stories that are okay with criticism, that create space for alternative narratives that aren't necessarily just like positive in like traditional narratives about how everything's great and getting better. Because I think that that like desire to push neg negativity or push positivity on people, one insults the intelligence of people in the ag industry who are my people and I am one of them. And I don't only need to, to read or watch positive news. And I think it just, it makes people, I mean, to the fact that we also talk a fair amount about the fact that we have a mental health crisis in agriculture and rural communities. If we only have, if we focus on news that's positive, we make people feel abnormal for not feeling positive all the time. Because we're, you know, if they look at the news and they're like, well, apparently it's great to be a family farmer and it's never been better in agriculture than it is right now, then it, you're creating a misconception for people that, you know, it's normal to be happy and positive all the time. And that's how you should want to feel. 
and it just isn't always the case. And no, so no, I, yeah. yeah. And then if I have a problem, it must be me. It must be my fault because everybody else is just living large. Yep. Yeah. So trying to my best when I can to find places to have an honest conversation that isn't necessarily all about positivity. It seems like part of the part of it too, and I don't know as much about ag media as you do, having worked in it. But it seems like part of it is so worried about seeming critical of agriculture because an advertiser might not like it. I mean, there just seems to be an element here that's the the advertising model, especially as agriculture is consolidated. You lose one big advertiser, and it can be you know it can mean layoffs. Is that part of the problem? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the future of ag media. And I use ag media in air quotes. Yeah, I think that's totally part of the problem. There's just so few organizations in agriculture that have money to spend on advertisements. And that's just true. And the model that's been inherited from the rest of media of needing to sell advertisements and, and getting most of your funds that way is really challenging for ag. And it makes people definitely very cautious about the kind of editorial they do. I think at this point, it is not even very conscious conscious among editors or, or editor. It's just, you know... I hear people talk about the need to walk down the middle of the road, but walking down the middle of the road means never saying anything critical about the industry. That's like the code word in ag media a lot of the times. And and it's pushback I've gotten from editors before. And it is fascinating to see how that kind of gets coded into people's just like understanding of no, no, not criticizing the industry is the middle of the road. It's, it's no, there's no, it's no longer like a wink week situation. It just is what people's expectation is. So I think that's part of it. But I also think that those, those big industries are moving, are going to start moving past ag media. It's cheaper to hire a YouTube star or pay to create a really great podcast through a PR firm and go straight to your audience and create really specific content that sells your product than it is to pay for adverti- for banner advertisements on a website when you know that banner advertisements never work. So I think ag media is n- not always aware of how it might be being left behind. And we're seeing new publications come up. The Counter is a great example of a really successful publication that's doing this of nonprofit journalism. And that's it's tough to be a reporter who works with a lot of nonprofit journal journalist spaces. They don't have a ton of money because they're nonprofits. And, you know, that only makes that competitive nature of freelancing even more challenging. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, and so I think that that next, the real leaders in the next generation of ag media or whatever this is, is going to be, is going to be those YouTube stars. It's going to be the people who have popular podcasts that people actually listen to. It's going to be individuals that have, interesting, compelling personalities and perspectives that can go straight to their audience themselves, that don't need the banner head and the editorial staff to make things that are interesting that people want to read or watch or listen to. And I think that that's, you know, people definitely need news, but there's not enough kind of feed the beast type daily news stories in ag to to maintain how big and competitive a market I think ag media is right now. And I think it's, they're going to start losing out to, you know, people like Zach Johnson who have insanely huge followings that really transcend agriculture and that, you know, make him synonymous with like, he's the only person ag media anyone's ever heard of for, you know, millions and millions of people. And I think that's going to be a wake up call for ag media eventually. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think we're already seeing it. And, and for you, you've worked on the company side with FBN and then, you know, on the media side with RFD TV and, and others, I believe. So that's interesting to hear your take on it. It sounds like the future of ag media, you know, is going to look more and more like what FBN's doing and creating their own original content and partnering with people like Zach. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, having been able to see kind of both sides, it's because FBN is a great, is the exact kind of company that ag media would be looking to to sell ads to in the future. Yeah. And and they're and FBN's going right past them. FBN's not buying ads. I don't know. They might be buying some ads, but their partnership with Zach Johnson, I'm sure is dwarfs any ad spending they're doing and is factors of 10 more profitable for them than anything else they're doing. So, than anything they're doing with other kind of more traditional outlets. So, yeah, I think I think the money in advertising is going to go around ag media pretty soon because it's just not, there's not been, I mean, and this is another thing that I think lots of farmers will relate to. And I, every farmer I ever talk to, we talk about this eventually. The fact that, you know, the average farm with a dad and a son and maybe, you know, one other family member is receiving five copies of the same magazine every month, one for the farm, one for the home, one for the business, one for the dad, one for the son, one for the uncle. And they're like, we throw them all away. I've never opened that magazine in the 15 years I've gotten it. But you know, when that magazine is out selling ads, they're counting five people as part of their their distribution channel or dis- distribution numbers. Yep. So I think you know, eventually, companies and the people who are keeping ag media afloat are going to realize that no one's seeing the ads they're paying for, and that's going to start to undermine. And and you know, those ag media companies are going to get really pushed to either make great content that people need and want, or you know, they're going to have to figure out some other way to, to create interest and, and drive engagement. Yeah. Yeah. And I encourage a lot of people, and I, I don't know, we could have a different argument about whether everyone should create content, but I encourage a lot more people than create content now to do so, either writing or podcasting. It, my, you know, my experience mostly is with podcasting, but do some writing too. And it's such a powerful exercise in questioning your own assumptions, your own questions, and forcing you to listen to another point of view. I think, I think it's important for, for anyone. What are your thoughts on that about, you know, independent content creators, if more people should be writing and podcasting, and if, if they agree with you, or if you agree with me and everyone else agrees with us, how should they learn to do that? Absolutely. I also agree that there are so many voices of people that I would love to hear from and don't, and I don't know why. And I, I don't know if I'm just bad at finding them. I mean, I spend a lot of time on the internet, so I don't <laughs> think I'm bad at finding them, but I think they're just not out there. And I think part of it is because content creation and building audiences is exhausting. It takes a ton of work and it really is like a very long process that builds over a really long period of time, especially when it's in a very niche space. You know, maybe if you're just trying to be like a lifestyle Instagram model, it's a quicker and easier, but when you're trying to find all the people who care about ag policy or, uh, you know, whatever it is, that can be more challenging and take longer. I would say my biggest piece of p- pieces of advice for people who want to create content or potentially want to create content and want to do it impactfully in a way that, that helps you kind of build that audience is one, know everyone else who's doing what you want to do. There's already a conversation happening around what you want out there. Maybe it's one person who's just like screaming into the void. Go find them and like yell back at them. 
that's great. Then there's two people talking and like, you guess what? You've just like got your first audience member because that person has been trying to talk to someone and now you're there and you can communicate with them and, and you know, they're writing blog posts. You can write blog posts in response. It's great. So know the people who are already talking about what you want to talk about, I would say is the first thing, which is also great advice for if you become overwhelmed by places like Twitter. I have had to set myself the rule of Twitter, which is I only talk to people on Twitter who I have their phone numbers. So basically like I use Twitter to have public conversations with my friends or colleagues, which is great because then I go on there, I post stuff, people I know react to it, read it, interact with it and engage with it. And that kind of attracts other attention, but I don't get bogged down in, in dealing with trolls and all these really time-wasting things of social media. But yeah, and then I would also say be like, be an expert which sounds very overwhelming, but it actually is just like, make sure that when you write something or say something, you're not writing something that's already out there. You're not reiterating something. Even if you're just making a slight tweak or adding your own personal perspective or something, that's important. But every once in a while, someone will send me a blog post and be like, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm like, it's great. I've read it five times. Here's five other examples of this exact same thing that's been written, which is okay. Just go read all five of those and then write something that's not in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, those are the two biggest things is like talk to someone, find what you're interested in and find who else is interested in that and go respond to them, write about what they're writing about, fight against them, you know, have, make sure it's narrow. You know, you don't want to dive into a conversation that thousands and thousands of people are already having, but make it narrow enough that you're like, these are the five people on the internet who call themselves, these are the five people on Twitter who call themselves rural reporters. I'm going to go talk to those five people and see if they'll talk back to me. Do that and then make sure you're just saying something different. And I think that those are the only two things you really need to make good content and get people to engage with it and build an audience over time. I couldn't agree more with those points. And I, I face this a lot where I'm really encouraging someone and then they come back and they're like, okay, I'm going to do the farm wife show. And no offense to anybody who call, you know, brands themselves farm wife. And I'm like, okay, but you said you're really interested in this really interesting piece. Why not just go after that? And it's kind of like, well, how do I become insert big ag influencer here? If I'm the, you know, the direct to consumer goat <laughs> expert. And it's kind of like, well, I, I think, I think kind of the opposite. I think if you focus in on what is most important to you, you're going to be all that much more willing to number one, stick with it. And number two, actually have the impact you want to have. Yeah. My opinion. I, oh, totally. Yeah. I think the biggest mistake that I see people make is not being narrowly focused enough. It seems stifling, like you're going to run out of things to talk about, but the reality is there's 8,000 general farm interview podcasts out there. I would listen to a direct-to-consumer GOAT podcast in a heartbeat because that would be so interesting because it would be so specific. It would You'd get so deep in the weeds. If you're going to have a whole podcast about that, you must be really passionate about it. There's probably lots of interesting things to learn. I, as someone who I would think would be the target audience of a general farm podcast, think most of them out there are so general, they're boring. They're just not interesting at all. So like set yourself apart. Don't be afraid to do that. It's it's better to do that and then become like the goat girl or the goat guy. And then whatever, people will invite you on panels to, with the beef guy and the, and the chicken gal. And you guys can all talk about how your industries are different and the same. But yeah, ag got this like idea in our collective brain 10 years ago that, that our real problem is that consumers don't understand about agriculture. 
And so we've turned so much of our focus at like, if we could just explain to people what was happening, then we wouldn't have any problems anymore, which is seems like a fundamental misread of the whole situation at this point, because sure, there people don't understand a lot about kind of food systems in general, but people don't understand how iPhones are made either. And that doesn't make people hate iPhones. There's a different problem happening here. And it's not just one that can be solved by, you know, starting an, an Instagram account or a, or a Facebook account that just like shows people calves being born. It's It's a more complex problem than that. And it requires more engagement and more kind of personality and yeah is I, I, I don't know I think finding the idea that like ag can like all stick together and we can all sell the whole industry the whole thing all at once and and just create and capitalize on on goodwill as this huge group of businesses and it, that represent a huge industry that do very different things from each other is kind of insane mm -hmm. and so being able to you know I think a lot of people resist branding because it feels like, a, because that's what it is. It's differentiation. It's, it's putting yourself, it's separating yourself from your neighbors. It's making yourself stand out. And a lot of, a lot of guys don't feel comfortable with that. It's funny when I used to go out and spend a lot of time on farms, how uncomfortable people were standing in front of the camera. Cause they're just like, Ooh, I don't want my neighbors to think basically like that. I'm too big for my britches because I'm in a news story or I'm going to be in a magazine or whatever. But when you run a business, you need people to have a reason to buy from your business and not other people's businesses. And that's what like competitive free markets are about. So yeah, there's definitely a bit of a culture. It's, it's funny to me because there's, it's an, it's a culture clash for agriculture to deal with that. And we saw that problem and said, it's a culture clash for consumers to understand who we are, but, but that wasn't the problem. <laughs> but yeah, but I think that's changing now. And I think people are kind of seeing past the, I think there's, I am sure there's still plenty of people talking about the need to tell agriculture story, but I think there's more people who are understanding that pretending like consumers are idiots is not the way to treat customers. Engaging people with the industry is not just about telling them how it is and how they should act. It's about engaging them and answering their questions and, and being open to criticism that is real. And then not telling your customers what they are going to buy, responding to what they want and, and finding finding those markets and, and responding in the, that way. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's starting to become more important and we're starting to see the, the like ag just needs to reach out to consumers narrative fall to the wayside a little bit, which seems great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you mentioned Zach Johnson earlier. He's going to actually be on my podcast on Wednesday. And one of the things he said is when he started his channel or not when he started, but when it started to grow, he kind of, he was prepared to go to blows over GMOs and monocultures. And, and it turns out that his haters are, are not the quote unquote consumer. They're other farmers. And, and to your point, that's the problem. It's the cultural, who do you think you are to, put yourself out there or act like you're any different. And yeah, I agree. I think maybe we're, we're in some, we're seeing glimpses of maybe starting to, to move forward in that area. Yeah. It's such an interesting, that kind of whole idea is so magnified in DC in a lot of ways. Cause I think I've, I've talked about it before as, you know, in a lot of ways, ag's desire to be united is the thing that divides it the most. Mm -hmm. Everyone feeling like, Every, if everyone's not on the same page, then you're a troublemaker. If you're not with us, you're against us. And so no one can have a diverging view. And, but everyone thinks that they're the holder of the, view, of the one view. <laughs> 
so that that whenever they see someone else step out of line then they're the referee who's going to tell you that you've stepped out of line and they're going to shame you for it and i think you know farmers that i know deal with that so much in their own you know this is why people talk about you know why they don't want to explore alternative tillage why they don't want to do cover crops because they know that guys are going to shame them for having messy fields or or whatever nut stuff of just the way that people interact very locally but i think on a bigger level there's a resistance to hearing anyone who's not towing the the line towing the company line and i think that's you know i put after i after i started freelancing i put in my twitter bio that i'm not the enemy and not a cheerleader and i actually get a lot of mean dms about that where people basically of people just saying like like you are the enemy you're because you're not a cheerleader hmm. expressing skeptical views in agriculture has not really been a welcome thing for a very long time and I think that's starting to shift. I'm definitely trying to be someone who voices some alternative views and and who reaches out to people who have alternative views and tries to, you know, talk about them, engage with them publicly. But yeah, there's a lot of people who would prefer I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. They view it as you sowing seeds of doubt that uh, on, on sort of the foundation of what their point of view is built on. Exactly. And that, yeah. And the fascinating thing is that there's so many people who will come up to me, you know, especially in over the winter, I went to a lot of trade shows and stuff and people who who know me from whatever reporting I've done and who pull me aside and say, you know, like, listen to this crazy thing that, you know, this happened in my year and, and it was crazy and me being like, that's a crazy story that I think a lot of people would be really interested in. Can I put you on the record? And then being like, oh no, like I can't possibly go on the record about that. Like, you know, either because I'm, I'm on my local soybean board or I'm involved with the Farm Bureau or I'm anything, or just like I have a buyer who would be sensitive to hearing me say something about that. Or, or I would rather my neighbors not know that I like think that, or I did that, or I am thinking about doing this. And just the, the constraint that everyone lives in of feeling like you have to have a public a public version of what you think and believe and a and but every but also knowing that everyone has a private version of what they think and believe which is very different i think in a lot of ways i think consumers can tell that about the industry i think we're not such good liars that everyone can like looks at us and and believes that this whole industry involving millions of people is truly united on every issue. And I think if there's people, if there's smart, thoughtful, intentional people out there who can have conversations that are empathetic and insightful and who let people stay in the conversation, even though they might disagree with them and who stay in the conversation, even when people are mean to them, then that's what's going to drive the the industry forward at this point. That's kind of my whole goal of where I'm at right now in my career is just like, is just telling people I'm going to stay here and keep having these awkward conversations about these topics people don't really want to talk about. And then tomorrow, after I get all your mean DMs, I'm still going to be here. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to be part of the ag industry and I'm still going to be having these same conversations tomorrow. So like, see you then, Twitter. Man, what a great conversation that was. I mean, very engaging, unconventional thought-provoking. Thank you, Sarah, so much for bringing the unfiltered perspective onto the show. I highly encourage all of you listening to go follow Sarah Mock on Twitter, Medium, LinkedIn, or wherever else 
you can keep up with her work. It's really fun to watch. We turn now to a founder spotlight. As many of you know, we started doing farmer spotlights last year to highlight direct-to-consumer businesses. And I'm still doing these. In fact, just heard from a great direct-to-consumer business last week. Additionally, however, I want to highlight early-stage startups occasionally as well. This one in particular is fun for me for, for two reasons. Number one, the founder, like Sarah, is also in this year's cohort for AgGrad 30 Under 30. And I know you, you probably aren't going to believe me on this, but I actually didn't even realize that that was happening until just a minute ago. It was completely unintentional, but it's cool that we just have that caliber of people in our group of 30 Under 30. And then secondly, the audio you're about to hear comes from our first ever FOA community live pitch event. We're going to be doing these once or twice per quarter for members of the venture level of the FOA community. And it's really fun. The The, the vibe is, is casual and supportive and encouraging. And just a bunch of people who care about the future of ag who get together online. It's completely virtual and support a couple early stage startups. And so it's the first one was a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to others as well. You can join that over at patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Today's founder spotlight is Tyler McGee of Shepherd Farming, which is a digital labor platform for farms and other agricultural operations. Tyler's familiarity with farming operations goes back to his time growing up in Montana. This really got started working on my family farm up in Northeast Montana. And we lived about two and a half miles south of the Canadian border. So very, very desolate, very sparse up there, but a great place to to really get a, a good background in agriculture. And when I, I say that Shepherd's all about making farm labor more efficient and making it work better for both the farm management side and the farm workers, that comes from our family background. I was one of those farm workers. I've spent my time out in the field. And so when we're working on new features and talking with farmers about you know ideas for ways that we can make things work a lot better, it always comes back to me sitting on the back of a truck thinking about how could things on our farm be better. and and. I really enjoy having that that grounding. In addition to this background, Tyler spent over six years working for Syngenta in research and development. As his entrepreneurial curiosity started to get the best of him, he started thinking about two fundamental questions farm managers ask on a daily basis. And the first question is, what needs to be done on my farm today? And the second is, who's going to do it? And for farmers, this is... a you know, a really tricky spot because we see that the the agriculture equipment, the seeds, the chemicals, they get better every single year. And there's this massive component to farming, which is the, the labor, the working side, that really seems stuck in the past. And that's that's really frustrating for farms. And especially when it's for a lot of farms, their second or third largest expense, it becomes a very costly frustration. And I've seen plenty of farms handling this in some very interesting ways. I saw one farm that had an entire wall in their farm management office covered in sticky notes. I saw another one where they'd print out paperwork orders and stick them on the seats of tractors and equipment. And then it was up to the workers to do Oklahoma land rush to, to find the work and the machine they wanted to work on. So a lot of this is, is you know, really farmers trying to make do with, with what's out there and trying to make something that fits, but not having a whole lot of luck with that. As they started making headway on helping farmers manage labor, Tyler and his team realized that they were onto something bigger, a new approach to farm management in general. We started with the labor piece, and we recognized that if you understand what's happening on a farm from a labor standpoint, you understand pretty much what's going on on the farm in general. You know what equipment's being used, you know how the inputs are being used, you know where money's being spent, all because you understand that labor piece, that, that connective fabric that makes the farm work. 
Of course, to find out if they were really making progress, Shepard had to get into the hands of farmers in a real field setting. Getting into the Ag Launch program allowed them to do just that. We did research trials last year. Like I brought up, we did three of them through the Ag Launch Network, and we had a really, really good experience going through the Ag, Ag Launch Accelerator program. One of them was on a 20,000 acre cotton farm. And this is a farm that is in multiple states, you know, massive operation. And they actually came on at the end of the trial as our first customer. Their head farmer, their, their owner said that using Shepard made him feel like he was standing in his field, even though it was in a different state, you know, that he knew what was happening. He never feel like he was, felt like he was out of the loop. And that to him was worth coming on as that first customer. He said they needed this. This was something that was now critical to the way they work. Another trial we did was on the opposite end of the scale. It was a produce farm that was less than an acre in total size. And we're actually doing a follow-up research trial with them this year, fine-tuning some of the mechanisms to make it work at their scale. But this is something that we say is so critical, you know, that, that we cover every aspect of the farming community, always, you know, focusing on the very large farms and the the ones that operate like a business, but also making sure that we're covering family farms and that we're covering produce operations and branches as well, because that's part of the ag spectrum. And we want to make sure that everybody is a, a part of that and, and nobody feels left out. For more on the Ag Launch program, you can listen to episode 117 of this podcast with Pete Nelson. The level of thoughtfulness Tyler and the team at Shepherd are putting into this, I think, is impressive. For example, sometimes certain tasks on the farm can't go to plan due to Mother Nature. And we've also started working on some really cool and really powerful features that up till now just weren't feasible. And one of them that I like to highlight is, you know, if we have a task management system for farming and we have a weather component into that so we can show farmers what the weather is like on all their fields, it really isn't that big of a leap to then connect that back to the task process when they're creating a task to run a really quick check against that task. We know where the task is supposed to happen. We know what field and we know roughly what time period because the farmer said, you know, here's a start and an end date to it. And we can run that against a weather forecast and say, is it going to rain? And if it's going to rain, can we check and find some other dates that are going to be a much better fit for that work and then present that back to the farmer saying, hey, we caught this and you know, we don't, we're not saying we're replacing what you said. You can always stick with, with what you originally said into that task. But we've got some recommendations on how we can make this better, how we can say that there's a much better chance of this piece of work being able to be done on time in this, this area at this time. Cool stuff. Thanks so much to Tyler McGee for being one of our very first pitches at the FOA Community Pitch event. Go show Tyler and the team some love over at shepherdfarming.com or on Twitter. They're at Shepherd Farming. Hey, thanks so much. This has been a really great episode to put together. I really appreciate your time and your attention, as always. We'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. Go over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Music.